0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It floored me with that question. Mm -hmm. And I knew enough to say, well, I'm here to learn from you and to give whatever I can as a teacher.
1: They're human beings who sometimes sneak cigarettes, um, who sometimes roll their eyes at the priest. One calls the priest a benevolent dictator.
0: Um, These are real women. And I think it should be a choice for priests. I really do. I think we would have a healthier church if we had women priests, and if we had men who were able to choose married life, if that's what they felt called for. I'm Sarah Fenske.
1: Marian O'Shea Wernicke titled her debut novel, Towards That Which is Beautiful. It's set in Peru in the early 1960s. There, a young St. Louis-born nun grapples with high altitude, her attraction to a handsome Irish priest, and ultimately a crisis of faith. The novel draws on Wernicke's time in Peru. She, too, was a nun, one raised in St. Louis and one who ultimately chose to leave the convent. And she joins us today to tell us about her novel and also about her life. So, Marian O'Shea Wernicke, Welcome.
0: Sarah, thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to people in St. Louis. This is amazing. (laughs) Well, we're so happy you could join
1: us. And I want to say as we're starting here just how much I loved this novel. It just sucked me in. And I'm recommending this to so many people right now. So we, we appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. So this novel, this is set in the high plains of Peru. A lot of people might not be familiar with this area at all. What is this area like?
0: well I I visited it I didn't ever live up there but it's just like another world it's 12,000 feet high Lake titicaca is the highest lake in the world and the climate is very hot sun during the day but freezing cold at night and I think um, when I was in La Paz I spent the coldest night I've ever spent anywhere uh, in the convent there so it's and also, the, um, the um, altitude affects your lungs. Mm-hmm. So if you forget yourself and run up the steps, your heart is beating out of your chest. So it's really, uh, and also in Latin America, the stars are different at night. So you look up, hoping to see, you know, our familiar Big Dipper, and everything's different. So you, you feel you're on the other side of the world, <laughs> which you are. <laughs> so it's this
1: alien landscape. Yes. Tell us about Kate O'Neill. This is the St. Louis-born nun who ends up stationed there in this strange land.
0: Yes. Well, Kate is 25 years old. She's never been out of the United States before. Um she's somewhat, she's very idealistic. She's going there because she volunteered, she's not forced to go there, but she's a little bit naive. And she entered the convent right after high school, so she's not an experienced um, woman. Mm But she's very willing and she's gone to language school she's studied in the in Cochabamba at the Marino priest language school but she's only studied Spanish and the people in the Al, in the Altiplano speak in that area speak Aymara, an indigenous language. So she's dependent in her work on translators and with a translator you never really know if they're translating what you're saying correctly. So Mm -hmm. she's been there about six months, almost a year when, when the novel begins, when she actually... And I begin it with her walking out, and then there's the backstory. Yeah, so she walks
1: out of of this convent, and I don't want to give away all that happens, but I think it's fair to mention, since we learned this very on, she's torn up by her love for a priest. Were you worried, as as you were telling this story, that that's almost a cliche, the kind of thing (laughs) non-Catholics assume
0: that always happens here in the nunnery? Well you know, that, that occurred to me. And also, I didn't want it to be offensive to Catholics. But I think it's really important to understand that priests and nuns are real human beings. They have feelings just like everybody else. And that celibacy is a difficult choice. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not a choice that's valued in our culture. Um, and, and so, Kate is surprised at the power of her attraction to him and feels somewhat guilty. Um, I, we had an old chaplain in our convent who, who reminded us, feelings are never wrong. Feelings mm-hmm. are natural. And that was very, very helpful to me. But Kate is, you know, experiencing this, and she has never really been in love before this. So, I think that's another thing. I, I wanted people to see nuns as human beings. And and you did such a great job of this in this book. They're human beings. They're human
1: beings who sometimes sneak cigarettes, um, who sometimes roll their eyes at the priest. One calls the priest a benevolent dictator. Uh, these are real women. And I got the sense you drew on the women that you served with as, as you painted some of them.
0: Yes, I can't tell you. You know, nuns are portrayed in popular culture in terrible ways, usually, either very frigid and cold and heartless or kind of silly and singing like Whoopi Gold- Goldberg, you know, in Sister Act or mm-hmm. something but but they're not and they're really wonderful women they're always educated we were a teaching order so many of all we all had degrees many masters degrees even phd's so they're they're women that are interested in the world and interested in other people And I wanted that to come through. So something else that comes through
1: is that her journey as she flees um, from where she's stationed, sets off on her own and and ends up sort of traveling around the country. And it's almost harrowing in parts.
0: (laughs) Um, When you were in Peru, did you ever travel by yourself like that? Never. Are you kidding? I would have been scared to death to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: So these are all
0: imagined encounters. Yes, this, this was my trying to figure out, well, well, if I were in that situation, I had to get out a map, I had to kind of map out her journey, how long it would take her to get from place to place, where she would go. She's kind of vaguely headed north toward Lima, mm-hmm. but she's not sure. And the fact that she really doesn't have any money except for the couple of uh, uh, bills that the Englishman Peter stuffed in her pocket in the jacket, thinking that she might steal it. So (laughs) I had to have her have money in some way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that solved kind of that question there of of how would she even be able to get around? But so you kind of plotted out this journey, your knowledge of Peru, I imagine, came in very handy as you're thinking about what she might have encountered at various points.
0: Yes, yes, there were, you know, people you you would be stopped for questioning sometimes at border patrols. There were lots of Peace Corps workers around. So uh, yes, I had her experience. uh, What what anyone could. The only place I really hadn't visited was the town of Ica, where that canal was. But all the other places I had seen, and I I had to get out guidebooks and look look things up. And, you know, fiction doesn't just come out of thin air. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's clear you did a lot of
1: research. You're not just coming in, sort of inventing people out of whole cloth. Like you learned even more, I imagine, about this culture than what you knew when you were
0: stationed there. Yes, yes, very true. In fact, I read a history of the Marinole priest there that really was very interesting to me from the early 50s when they started going to the Altiplano, and they really didn't know how to do it, and they changed their methods, so it's very interesting to see this whole idea of going to another country to help feels rather patronizing now, but that isn't the way they felt then, but they had to kind of evolve to a, a more humanistic approach, I think.
1: I thought it was interesting. This this comes across so clearly in the character of Kate, the protagonist in this book. She becomes so frustrated by how little she knows about the culture of Peru. Yes, and yes. she's so frustrated by that language barrier. She keeps thinking, mm-hmm. like, w- why am I even here? As much as she wants to do good work, she's not sure that she's doing it. And I, I found myself wondering about your time in Peru. Do you feel, looking back on it, that you were able to do good as, as somewhat of a naive American there in a totally different culture?
0: Sarah, I feel I gained so much more than I gave to anybody. And uh, that question, what are you doing here, always was in my mind, too. Because one day I was in a taxi cab. I don't know why I was taking a cab. We usually always took the bus. But the guy looked back at me and he said, you're from the United States, aren't you? He said in Spanish. I said, yes. And he said, why are you here? Aren't there problems in your own country? And this was 1968. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. The civil rights movement was heating up, protests, uh, Vietnam was heating up. And it floored me with that question. Mm -hmm. And I knew enough to say, well, I'm here to learn from you and to give whatever I can as a teacher. But But in the back of my mind was always that question. And that's what the officer that Kate runs into asks her too. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing here? It seems patronizing in a way to people. It does. And, and I find myself wondering, I mean, on,
1: on one hand, there are some good things that um, missionaries like these sisters yes. do. I mean, they're, they're teaching and they're there working hard, but you also point out what they see as taking a, a vow of poverty. Their situations aren't nearly as impoverished as the other people around
0: them. Yes. And that bothered me too. We lived in a nice, uh, it wasn't an, uh, an elaborate house. I worked in Lima, Uh, But it was a brick house, and it had a nice garden, and it was in the parish grounds. But the people around me were lower middle class people living in tiny little apartments. And I remember saying to the sisters, don't you think we should be living in a little apartment like the people? And well, this was 68. Now, that's the way they live. But Mm -hmm. at that time they didn't see you know that there was sort of a dichotomy there between their lifestyle and the people's lifestyle
1: we're talking today to Marion O'Shea Wernicke. Her novel is called Towards That Which is Beautiful. Now, she currently lives in Texas, but she is a St. Louis native, born and raised here. And Marion, I'm curious to hear more of your story, since so much of it informs where you took this novel. And obviously, so much of this novel is fiction. You did not do this harrowing journey. You did not serve in the Altiplano, the high plains there in Peru. But you did become a nun in St. Louis as a teenager. This is just like your protagonist
0: here. Um, Is there a lot of Kate in you and vice versa? Yes, my sisters laughingly said, you know, that's your story. And I said, no, it's not. (laughs) But I I wrote this book because I often had students who found out I was a nun. And they would say, well, why would any normal girl want to take a vow of poverty, chastity and obedience? Certainly anti-cultural values. Nobody wants to be poor, chaste or obedient. So, I wanted to ex- explore that and dramatize that in a way that people could relate to. Because I, in the fifties, there were lots of girls going to the convent. In fact, the year I went, I went to Assumption High School in O'Fallon. At that time, it's now Saint Dominic's, and uh, eight girls from our high school entered the community. We were thirty-two in that class. That was nineteen fifty-nine. Wow! So it was, it was your parents were honored by it. My dad, Irish Catholic, you know, he had thought maybe he should be a seminarian and lasted two weeks when he, <laughs> he decided it wasn't for him. So um, it wasn't unusual for Catholic girls. That was one way you could be serve in the world. And I had a teacher I admired very much, just like Kate in the book does in seventh and eighth grade. Sister Mm. Hortense, she was my idol. She was a lot of fun. She was very winning, but very spiritual, too. So, yes. And when you entered,
1: though, Marion, I mean, you were so young. You hadn't even yet finished high school when you announced (laughs) you were were going to put in with this. Why do
0: that at such a young age? I was very stubborn, as many teenagers are, I think. Uh, I wasn't running away to San Francisco. I was running away to a convent. But I, my mother was very opposed to it. She had six littler children than me, so she needed my help. And she said, plus you can't even obey me, how are you going to obey some superior? And I said, Oh, mom, I'll do it for God, then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) do it for God, but not for your parents. (laughs) Right. But I think my dad sort of talked her into it. I I was getting boy crazy by that time, as we used to say. And I thought, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I felt I was supposed to do that. That's Mm -hmm. the other thing. You feel a person feels you have a call, and I felt it very early when I was 11 or 12, but I didn't tell anybody because it seemed so odd, but... um that's why you know, and it did help that other girls from my high school were going too. Mm-hmm.
1: So this was something that
0: that women at the time did. Yes. So you some, did some. this.
1: You went through with this, and then you ended up leaving after eleven years. Was there a handsome Irish priest who was involved in that?
0: <laughs> well, um, yes, there was someone I did fall for, but luckily for us, and he for me. We were working in two different countries. He was mm-hmm. working in Bolivia. I was working in Lima. So it was this relationship was carried on mostly by mail. Uh, and what that did, you know, falling in love, what it did was show me who I really was. And then there was a big conflict, of course, because I had already made my vows. Now, you notice in the novel, that Kate is still in what we call temporary vows, but I was already in final vows. So I had to think long and hard. I would say it was a three-year period of discernment and reflection. And I asked for advice once from a priest, and he said, well, do you feel free to leave the convent? And I said, no, I don't. I feel guilty. I feel like I'm turning my back on God. And he said, well, don't leave until you... Really feel in your heart that you're free to do this. So I think that was very good advice.
1: So he wanted you to be able to to make peace with this, to understand yes. that that God would be okay with this. Was, yes. was that what he was driving
0: at? I think so. And and as I have Kate realize in the book, she says to God, "You made me this way, so I'm going to try to follow my nature. You know, follow the way I see my life now." And this this priest who advised you that kind of suggested there was a
1: way that that you could break your vows. Is that how it's supposed to work? There is an out even after that point that you reached.
0: <laughs> yes, you you have to write for well first you go and talk to the superior of your community <clears throat> and then you had to at that time write to Rome to be dispensed from your vows. Hmm. So it's a formal process. And interestingly, before I got married to my husband, who was not that priest, who was an engineer, blah, 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 I had to produce the the letter from Rome that I was free to marry. <laughs> they otherwise did not want to
1: marry you if you
0: were still married to the I church. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I mean, that seems fair.
1: <laughs> so, okay, this leaves me to wonder. So you're carrying on this letter-writing relationship with this priest and, and just tormented by what to do here. You ended up finding a path that
0: worked out very well for you. Did this priest end up staying in the priesthood? Um, He did for a couple of years later, went to a different diocese, and he ended up leaving the priesthood and marrying somebody else. And Hmm. uh, we did stay friends for many years. He has since died, but uh, he was a wonderful friend and had a happy life himself. And I want to say something about this. I I think that one of the church's problems right now, and there are many, but one is the lack of Of women in leadership, that we don't allow women. And the other thing is that celibacy was never a requirement for priesthood until about 1100. Mm -hmm. So, the first thousand years of the Catholic Church, priests were married men with families. And I think it should be a choice for priests. I really do. I think we would have a healthier church. If we had women priests and if we had men who were able to choose married life, if that's what they felt called for. If they want to be celibate, fine, but it should be a choice.
1: And and you're calling for some big changes here. Um, you yourself <laughs> still consider yourself a Catholic, even even with this feeling that you'd like to see these reforms.
0: Right. I do. I do. I I have problems with the church, but I love the church, and I want it to change. And I, I feel with Pope Francis, we have a wonderful example. He is concerned about social justice. He's concerned about immigrants building bridges, not walls. He's concerned very much about the environment. He wrote a whole encyclical on it. So if the U.S. bishops would just get on the On the plane with the Pope, I think we'd be in better shape. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're not a one-issue church. We're a church that respects all of life. And I'm going to be part of that, too. And
1: you continue to believe in God today as well. It sounds like that's something that's still important to you.
0: Listen, having three children will make you believe in God. <laughs> All those nights when you're waiting for them to come in and hear the door slam, you know, and you're saying your pr- rosary on your knees. <laughs> so so. That, that has not changed for you.
1: That faith is still there. No. But part of what I loved so much about this book is it it almost made me um, longing. It made me nostalgic for this world that I never knew. And this I world see. this world of uh, nuns, there just are hardly any American-born nuns today? And I understand that that around the world, the Catholic Church is maybe doing a bit better with recruitment, but Mm -hmm. why do you think it is that that young women today don't even consider this an option in the way that it was for you back in the day?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Sarah, and I'm I'm not sure I know the answer, except that so many more opportunities are open for women. Um, You know, at, at the time, women in the 50s. Now, there were women engineers and everything, but but mainly you would be a teacher or a nurse, um, a secretary. But now women have their, everything is open. And I don't know, sometimes I wonder, you know, we we stopped wearing the habit. And so nuns look just like everybody else. And there are very few nuns in Catholic schools anymore. Mm -hmm. So, how do girls see nuns unless they would happen to run into them somehow in life? Um, so it's it's as if in a way they're not so visible anymore. And as they get older and the numbers diminish, as you pointed out, that's the problem. But I think we Every every woman can find her path and serve God, even she doesn't have to be a nun to serve God. Yeah, and I think I think as I was trying to
1: express sort of that nostalgia I felt for this era, I think I, I expressed that badly. I think what it felt like is that it was the very end of an era, and that's always uh-huh. kind of a—it's yes. kind of this moment where you take a deep breath and say, wow, things are changing. Like, <laughs> at the time that you're writing about, there were still large groups of nuns, and these women were living together and, and trying to do their best, but society was— changing so fast that women's independence was something that women were getting elsewhere. We see these women traveling in Peru so freely, and then there's these nuns who are still wearing the medieval robes. I guess the (laughs) contrast almost took my breath away. I wonder if you felt that at all when you were there in the late 60s. I mean, the world was changing so fast, and there you were,
0: a nun, Yes, but we were changing too, and our mission was changing. Uh, we weren't wearing the habit. I was wearing a skirt and blouse, and for a while a little veil, and then that came off so so pretty soon, you know uh one important thing to remember is always throughout the history of the church, communities have risen to fulfill a need, and then when that need was fulfilled, they would you know they could die out or something so. I think it's cyclical. I think, you know, things rise and fall. The needs are met. Uh, At one time, nuns, uh, were the teachers for all these kids in Catholic schools, well, they just aren't there anymore. So they'll, there'll be other missions, and, and they're doing things like in, our, in the Precious Blood Sisters, they have a soup kitchen, they do counseling, they do parish ministry. So there are other purposes. Mm-hmm. And they're still there. They're still, you know, working. They're just maybe not as visible.
1: I was going to ask you about this. So you were one of the Sisters of the Most Precious Blood based in O'Fallon. Are they still
0: in O'Fallon today? Yes the mother house is still there in fact they have turned it into a retirement center Mm -hmm. you can get an apartment there um, and they have the most beautiful grounds around them in O'Fallon there was an apple orchard we used to have to go pick apples and at one time they had chickens and bees and uh, it's just a beautiful place. I'd encourage anybody to, who lives around O'Fallon to go visit. They would love to see you. They'd give you a tour. Um, and there's, they also had a, a sewing department where they made vestments. So many priests in St. Louis and all over the country have vestments made by the sisters. That, that hmm. doesn't exist anymore. A lot of those sisters are so elderly now. But uh, that was another mission. And then we had a house in Finland. A house in La Paz, working with the Saint Louis priests from from the diocese, and a, a couple of houses in Lima. Hmm. So,
1: and so, their work continues. For you, um, this ended up your time as a nun ended up becoming a chapter, maybe several chapters. In, in what's been a, a very rich life, you became a college professor. You did end up marrying a different guy. You you had three kids. Looking
0: back, how do you feel on those eleven years that you spent as a nun? I don't regret one minute of them, you know, uh, some people said, Oh, my goodness, you missed your high school prom, you missed, you know, college having fun out. I went to college, but I was a sister. I don't, I don't feel that way. I feel like I grew, I went to a different country, I learned Spanish, I learned a different culture. My husband's mother's from Puerto Rico, we lived in Spain after we got married for a year and a half. So It it enriched my life. Plus, I still have very deep friendships with many of the sisters there. Mm. And it gave me a depth of philosophy and theology and scripture that I'm sure I wouldn't have had if I hadn't had that experience. So, no, I don't regret it. You know, your life is like a tapestry. It's made up of all these different chapters.
1: <laughs> and so now you have this this wonderful book that sort of draws on these years. Again, that book is Toward That Which Is Beautiful. I'm wondering if this was a shock for your kids or your parents uh, <laughs> to read about some of these things that the nuns were up to
0: in the 60s. Did you get some interesting reactions to this fictional treatment? I, I did expect that I would get some negative reactions. As far as my children, my daughter told me it was very entertaining my youngest son told me he'd listen to it when it was out on an audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> he's waiting for that! <laughs> yes, and I don't know if my son Tim, my middle child, I think he's read it too. So th- they're all, you know, they're, they're proud of me. Um, they think it's weird to have a mother that was a nun, so you know how, how kids are. But um, I, I didn't get too much negative. One One reviewer said, well, this, this young nun was not prepared spiritually for, for her mission, and I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> I didn't mean that to, to come across. But um, people have been really, those who've read it, have been really uh, complimentary, hmm. and uh, I, I'm glad I wrote it. And I have another book in the works, and it also takes place a great part in St. Louis, too. So
1: Wow, we're going to have to keep tabs on that book, and we'll have to have you back to talk about that one. I did so enjoy this book. And, and Marion, in our final minute here, the title of this book, Towards That Which Is Beautiful, it takes its name from a canal that really yes. exists in this High Plains yes. area. In our final minute, can you tell us just what, what you were thinking by using that name for this novel? Well,
0: I had a different title for the novel originally. It was called Dancing on the Edge of the World, and that came from the ending scene of the novel. But the publisher uh, that I work with, She Writes Press, which publishes women writers, Uh, she said, you know, there are three or four novels very close to having that title, so I don't think you should use it. So, I had, I had come across this word achirana, which is the name of this canal that exists in Ika, in the desert on the coast, bringing clean water down from the mountains. And achirana means that which flows cleanly toward that which is beautiful. So I thought, wow, that's Kate toward that which is beautiful. She's on this journey and and she's got to get to her truth. That's mm. where her journey needs to lead her. It's not just about being in love. It's about who she is as a person. And that's what I hope by the end of the novel she understands. Or that's what I meant for her to understand.
1: I think she gets there. Uh, Mary <laughs> o'shea
0: wernicke I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing about your book. Sarah, thank you. It's been so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
1: Understanding starts here.
0: Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people
1: discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.